Hello, woodworms. You're listening to Ray Defterius, and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the show for woodworkers who also like to read about woodworking. Are you thinking of buying a new tool that fixes a problem you never knew you had? Are you suffering from tool acquisition disorder and have just convinced yourself that $750 for the limited edition number 4.5 bronze Lee Nielsen plane is worth it? Or are you just starting out and have no tools whatsoever? Regardless of how long you've been using hand tools or how much you are planning on spending, I'd recommend you read today's book before you spend one more cent on tools. The book is from Christopher Schwartz, who is undoubtedly one of the most influential hand tool woodworkers of the last few decades. A furniture maker, writer and publisher, he was an editor of Popular Woodworking magazine and is one of the co-founders of Lost Art Press. For those of you who don't know Lost Art Press, it's probably worth covering that off early in the series. These are guys that are going to take a lot of your hard-earned money off you in the future, and you're going to enjoy the experience. I'll throw in a few quotes from their website here, most importantly, why they were started. The company was started because of a question. What happened to all the great woodworking books that used to be published? The books that changed the course of the craft and people's lives. The books that explored our ever-diminishing link to the handwork of previous centuries. So basically, they're dedicated woodworkers who uncover, promote, and generally do all the stuff necessary to make sure that relevant books, both new and historical, are available to people like us. Furthermore, I think they're a company worth supporting. If you're interested, they've got a lot more details in the About section of their website, and I'll link to that in the show notes. But the standouts for me are, to encourage high-quality books, we split all our profits 50-50 on our books with the author. This is an unheard of royalty in corporate publishing. This approach will also help support the work of independent woodworkers financially, as woodworking is a difficult profession to succeed in. All of their books are printed in the United States on the best materials. We keep our books in print for as long as possible, and we do not have any employees. We have to keep our expenses as low as possible because we return half of all our profits to the authors, so John and I have second jobs to make ends meet. Instead of hiring employees, we hire fellow independent designers, illustrators, editors and photographers to assist us with our books, and we pay them New York City rates. In other words, we pay well. We accept no sponsorships, affiliate money, or free or discounted tools. Everything we write is 100% unsponsored. We operate without debt, and we play our supplies promptly. We sell our books only through outlets we trust completely, family-run businesses such as ourselves. We do not sell through mass-market retailers or Amazon. We do not discount or put our books on sale. We think everyone should pay the same price when they buy our books, a fair price that allows us to stay in business and the author fed. Okay, so that's the end of the quotes, and here are a few thoughts of that. As I mentioned in my introduction, I contributed chapters to some history books a while back. I think the royalty rate worked out at about 5% of a wholesale price. I can't quite remember the exact details, and I'm not going back in my records to check. I was pretty traumatized at the time. And reliving that part of my history is not a pleasant memory. Okay, well, that's a bit tongue-in-cheek. I'm really glad to have a book with my name on the spine, but I think I did it more as a ego or a love or a curiosity thing, and not for the money. 5% of wholesale, which is normally 50% of retail, works out to about 25 cents for every $10 a book sells to the public. You're not living off that in a hurry. Speaking from experience, I can say that I genuinely believe their quality statement is true. They use great paper, sewn bindings, fiber tape and thick hardbacks. 
The only other people I can think of that are comparable are the guys at Mortis and Tenon magazine. They really have a quality ethos. You're not going to have a book falling apart on you in a few years' time. The press was started with $4,000 in 2007, and as of 2019 publishes about 30,000 books a year. Thanks to the way they operate, I think that they are a sustainable small business that's worth supporting. And thanks to their policy on discounting, I think you can rest assured that now is as good as any time to buy their books. There's not going to be any Black Friday sales here. And because they're not debt-ridden or sponsored, I think that, well, just like this podcast, you're getting their view on the world. Feel free to disagree, but essentially, right or wrong, we're sincere in what we do, and we're not being sponsored by anyone else in driving their agenda. The Anarchist Tool Chest, today's book, is a book that seemed to pop up on just about every woodworking forum I looked at that had an interest in hand tools. The book is just under 500 pages long, so it takes a while to get through. It's 6 inches by 9 inches and was published in 2011. The cheapest way to get it is as an electronic book, which is going to cost you around $23. It's $46 for the hardbound book and $57.50 for the combination deal of physical and electronic. I bought the electronic book, and it's something I've regretted ever since. I also made the same mistake with the joiner and the cabinet maker, but I corrected that earlier this year when I bought the physical version of the book. If you want my advice, drop the $46 and get the physical book. I reread this book in preparation for this episode, and even a year later there are all kinds of nuggets that I missed on the first reading of the book. Basically, I think that if you stay with hand tool woodworking, this book is going to have dog ears by the time you give it to your son or daughter. As a bit of an aside, I absolutely love my Kindle. It's my preferred device for consuming fiction of any form, and I love the fact that I can take a small library backwards and forwards with me. In 2001, I had to leave 18 books, all my holiday book purchases in Greece, as the cost of the excess baggage just made it stupid to do anything other than to rebuy them when I got back home. That burnt my backside, and the Kindle has saved me many times since. Reading while looking at the sea is just one of those things for me. Having a way to do it anywhere is a game changer. The problem I have with this book on the Kindle is that firstly, you really want to have one in the workshop, and secondly, it's the kind of book that you'll flip backwards and forwards through, and it's kind of annoying on the Kindle. Finally, if you do build the tool chest, the project that makes up the last portion of the book, I think a physical book is a better format for balancing on the workbench while you get on with it. Just try and avoid getting milk paint on it. So here's the blurb. When I'm too exhausted, ill or busy to work in my shop, I will shuffle down the stairs to my 15-foot by 25-foot workshop and simply stand there for a few minutes with my hands on my tools. To be sure, I thought I was a touch nuts because of this personality quirk. But after reading the oral histories and diaries of craftsmen for the last 300 years, I found it's actually a common trait among artisans. I am drawn, married, or perhaps addicted, to the things that allow me to coax wood into new shapes. At the same time, my relationship with my tools is like a tumultuous combination of an Italian family drama, a bigamous decision about who to sleep with, and a careful gardener. This book, The Anarchist Tool Chest, paints a world where woodworking tools are at the centre of an ethical life filled with creating furniture that will last for generations. It makes the case that you can build almost anything with a kit of less than 50 high-quality tools, and it shows you how to select real woodworking tools, regardless of their vintage or brand name. The Anarchist Tool Chest will guide you in building a proper chest for your toolkit that follows the ancient rules that have been forgotten or ignored, and it will make the argument that building a chest and filling it with the right tools just might be the best thing you can do to save our craft. 
Like all books from Lost Art Press, the Anarchist Tool Chest is printed and bound in the United States on acid-free 60 paper. The 6x9 hardcover is Smithsonian and covered in linen. Chris breaks down how he arrived at the title in the book, and I think that all three words in the title are actually important. Anarchist, tool, chest. We'll start at the beginning. The anarchist he speaks about is not some crazy anti-government militant. Instead, it is an aesthetic anarchist. Someone who owns his own tools, works with his hands, and makes furniture to last, rather than buying disposable, poorly made, mass-produced, and sold as furniture from a shop. It's an important concept, and many of the book's most profound insights are a logical progression of this key theme. What I found resonated with me is similar in many ways to some of the things I enjoy watching on TV or YouTube. It's the struggles of ordinary people living with real threats of the environment in Alaska on Life Below Zero, or the daily tasks of a modern homesteader like Wrangler Star on YouTube. I've grown a few vegetables in the garden, and I've done a bit of wiring here and there, a bit of plumbing, but it's not likely that I'll ever live outside of a city. And yet I find that there's something in me that really likes the concept of being less materialistic and being more self-sufficient. Making things in today's world, whether they're groceries that are grown, art you created yourself, or a side table that you made in the shop, all of these things are really quite different when you think about it. I would propose that most of your colleagues at work are going to call a handyman when their back door is sticking. They're not reaching for a shoulder plane and trimming it to size. Many family members subscribe to the principle of saving money towards good quality items, not applying their time towards making them. And that, I think, is at the heart of the anarchism in the book. Equipping yourself and hopefully your children to think about making quality, not buying quality. As an editor at a woodworking magazine, I guess Chris had far more exposure to the shiny than most of us. New machines, better machines, this year's killer invention, things like that were passing across his desk on a weekly basis. And I think that the amount of stuff they sent the magazine would probably be any hobbyist's dream. And yet we discover quite early in his book that ultimately the purchase of new shiny toys does little to provide meaningful improvements in his workshop environment. In fact, it is only when he begins to resist the call to buy the next best thing this year that he starts to progress. From there, it's an interesting journey of disposing of tools he no longer uses, no longer acquires, and taking the money and using it on the important things. I enjoyed reading the book The Minimalists by Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus. From it, I learned that the heart of minimalism is not about having less and less to the point of nothing. Instead, it's about removing things that don't add value. If you don't know of The Minimalists, an excellent read that's outside the scope of this podcast is everything that remains. Chris really embraces this, and it's something I can recommend based on my experience. When I started hand tools, I was in crazy acquisition mind frame. I was blown away by hand planes. For me, everything before had been about radial arm saws and orbital sanders. But enamored by the unbelievable finish even a clumsy amateur could obtain with a plane, I had to go out and acquire a full set of them. I watched Paul Sellers on YouTube, so Record was the brand that I was after and I went on an eBay spree of note. Although most cost $20 to $30, I rapidly racked up a bill as I acquired a number three, two number fours, two number four and a halfs, two number fives, a five and a half, a six, a seven, and I even managed to find that elusive number eight. Why the duplicates? 
Well, frankly, I just grabbed them whenever I saw one in an antique shop or online. And that's why the most popular sizes ended up with multiples. There was a lot of vinegar in that part of my history. A lot of rust being scrubbed off after vinegar baths. Some truly beautiful restorations, in my opinion. And I learned the right tone of paint, how to strip and apply mahogany stone to the handles, and how to use shellac. My kids learned a lot of this as well, and we had a lot of fun as a family taking on rust bucket projects and trying to make them beautiful again. Let's fast forward a year to a place where I found myself very reluctant to do any form of sharpening because I was just so intimidated by the number of planes hanging on the wall. And I also realized that it really came down to two planes most of the time. A number four that I'd butchered into a scrub plane with a wide throat and a five inch camber and the number six which I used kind of as a baby jointer and occasionally maybe a smoother. Three planes out of 13 were getting used. The rest were just beautiful ornaments and, well, let's be honest, clutter. Ironically, the scrub plane was a $10 rust bucket when I got it. So this had nothing to do with value. It had to do with utilization. And I made a pretty hard decision to follow my power tool disposal strategy with my hand tools. If I haven't used it for a year, sell it or give it away. Don't keep things for the future scenario that may arise. Now after selling most of these planes, I'm down to a set that includes four planes. A number four smoother, number four scrub, number seven jointer, and a number five jack plane. Fortunately, the silver lining for me was that I made enough money off the restored planes to get a jointer from Lee Nielsen with the proceeds. But more importantly, my tool wall is looking clean, easy to maintain, and the tools on it are being used. That's my parallel to Chris's journey. I hope that you can avoid the same pitfall. Over at the Hand Tool School, where I'm a member, they have a term for it. TAD. Tool Acquisition Disorder. The desire to buy more and more beautiful tools, regardless of their utility. And I find the less time I spend in the shop, the more I'm tempted to buy things. Read Chris's journey and give this some thought. Are you spending more money on tools or more money on wood? Are you spending more time on eBay, shopping, or more time in your shop? And ultimately, have you pared your tool collection down to the minimum functional number that will give you capability, pleasure, and avoid excess? Historically, 40 to 60 tools is what you needed to do the work of a cabinet maker, and that included a lot of molding planes. Think about that before you buy some more tools. But enough of the heavy stuff. The second part of the book is a meaningful look at what hand tools are out there and what they do. There is bound to be at least a few you've never heard of and the author does a great job of working through these in an easy to understand manner without being simplistic. There are sections on hand planes, the essential joinery planes, saws, marking and measuring tools, edge tools such as chisels, mortise chisels, spoke shapes, scrapers, files and rasps, and tools such as hammers, mallets, nail sets, etc. Basically, there's a section on everything you need, some of which you might know about, some which you might not know about. Regardless, there's a treasure trove of knowledge on the tools. There's also a section on what supporting power tools you could use, and a bit about the good-to-have tools. Tools you can do without, but that are nice to have. However, all in all, the list is surprisingly short compared to the marketing catalogues of major tool vendors. If you're finding yourself baffled by the sheer range of options and brands, this is a good starting place. In particular, realizing you only need two or three bench planes 
is bound to be a revelation to readers used to seeing walls of planes in YouTube videos. Like any good toolbook, Chris also covers the major religious debates of our time, without taking sides on either of them. He talks about vintage restored versus new, wood planes versus metal planes, premium modern brands versus what he terms tool-shaped objects, bevel up versus bevel down, transitional versus infill versus Japanese planes, push versus pull, you get the idea. I think there's more than enough help in these books to let you make the major decisions, some useful advice, and some pros and cons of the different options. That said, bear in mind that some of these decisions are like car purchases. Different people with different preferences are going to have different perspectives, and in many cases a very different value of their own time. While a finely tuned antique plane will perform as well as a premium modern maker, you might need to invest a few hours, or days, of your time in getting it there. Whether that is worth it is wholly dependent on how much your time is worth to you and whether you enjoy this kind of process. I know of excellent woodworkers who will only buy premium tools. I also know of excellent woodworkers who will only buy pre-loved tools that they feel come with a pattern and a history that are impossible to buy off the shelf. I'd make one observation about antique tools at this point. Antique tools are different from virtually every other form of technology. If I consider cars, computers or pretty much any other machinery, the best option you can buy is being made today. It's generally cheaper and better than the last decade's model. So while I might like a 1950s convertible, it would be tough to argue that the car was better performing, more fuel economic or safer than 70 years ago. Hand tools are different. The best furniture ever made was created in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. It was done by the best artisans out of a large number of skilled craftsmen who served long apprentices and intimately knew what they needed to get from a tool so that they could get the best out of the wood. Industrialization did not improve this at all. Most people would agree that a 1900s metal plane is far better quality than a Second World War plane. In fact, most will tell you to ignore anything manufactured after the war. This is simply a result of mass production, lower quality standards, and increasingly cheap, not affordable, cheap tools. Sure, there are some modern manufacturers, Lyon Nielsen, Bad Axe, Veritas, etc., that are doing their bit to create better tools. But go out today and walk into a home store and buy the most expensive plane they have to offer. I bet it performs worse than a $25 antique. It's quite a thing to wrap your head around, but the precision required and displayed with antique furniture runs circles around mass-produced furniture today. Bear in mind that with a finely tuned hand plane, we are taking precision that is measured in thousands of an inch. Japanese hand plane competitions can produce shavings that are see-through and are in the single digits of microns. Let me put this in perspective. At a 4 micron shaving, a hand plane will take nearly 6,500 passes to remove an inch. That's just unbelievable. I know of no affordable woodworking power tools that can come even close to this level of precision. So don't look down on antique tools. If you can get a decent price on a user, it's well worth considering. Anyway, enough about that. There are also sections on sharpening and the essential bench appliances. I'd probably skip forward to the sharpening section before buying any tools. It's a foundational skill that's worth picking up. I've got a bit of a different setup from the author sharpening system, but I've used bench grinders, CBN wheels, diamond stones, sandpaper method. I used to have Japanese water stones, so I'm confident when I say that any system will work. 
Find one you like, get good at it. A premium tool that's been sharpened badly is just as useless as a home store tool that's barely functional. The bench appliances section will also teach you about some of the critical jigs that hand tool users use regularly in the shop. For some reason these are called appliances not jigs and a great couple of starter projects are putting together appliances such as shooting boards and bench hooks. I'm not going to go into detail about each section or we'd have a very long podcast but I think that once you've read and absorbed a section you'll have a new understanding of the tools. It may be profound or it may be as simple as understanding why a hammer's head is shaped the way it is and how it's supposed to be used. Ultimately the anarchist tool chest particularly the tool in ATC, is a book I find I will refer back to whenever I need to buy a tool and I don't have one in my arsenal. Later in this series I'll review the book I consider the tool Bible, but that's a complimentary purchase and I recommend that you ultimately buy both, so money spent on one is not redundant when you buy the other. Bits, braces, mallets, you name it, if it's critical to hand tool success it's going to be covered in adequate detail. You'll get 10 rules for workbenches, although that's one category that along with hand planes really deserves its own book, and again I'll cover that off in the near future. The final section of the book is about building projects. There's some design philosophy in here, for example why a shopboard table might just flip over when you're chasing a cat, and there's also some life philosophy. Just like why you should buy your last tool first, you might want to build your last dining room table first. In other words, Create items that are built to outlive you, that you'll be proud of. The tool chest is the main focus of the last hundred or so pages of the book. According to Chris, you're in for 40 to 80 hours to make one, but you need to prepare yourself for a lot of dovetails. I haven't built the chest yet, but it certainly comes up often enough in the woodworking communities I frequent. When I got to this part of the book, what I really got out of it was the process followed. The method of deciding what to build, and importantly how to build it. Everything from rough planing to panel glue up to putting the rabbits and hardware together. There's detailed dimensions if you want to follow those but by the same token he takes you through how he arrives at those dimensions and you can follow the process of putting together the sub-assemblies like the sawtill or the plane storage that he builds. Honestly believe that with virtually no external sources you could take this section and put out an excellent tool chest. Each step is detailed thoroughly explained and illustrated in a manner that should make it hard to go wrong. So why haven't I built it yet? It's a good question, but before I read this book I joined Shannon Rogers' school and as the final project of the first semester, he has a hanging tool chest. I'm steadily, well maybe slowly and steadily, working my way through his course in that direction. If I hadn't committed mentally to this course, perhaps I'd have a tool chest already that I'd built to Christopher's standards. So in quick summary, here's a conclusion. The Anarchist Tool Chest is written by Christopher Schwartz, an ex-editor of Popular Woodworking and one of the century's most influential hand tool evangelists. It's a meaty read at 494 pages and you'll cover three main sections in the book. Aesthetic Anarchy, a philosophy that rejects consumerism and chooses to build to last and to build for yourself. The essential tools that you'll need as a hand tool woodworker with some helpful suggestions on what to buy and what to look for and a project section where you'll construct the tool chest of the title. It's a worthwhile project that may be somewhat aspirational to the new woodworker. However, even if you hold off on building it for now, working through how it's constructed 
is bound to give you a great insight into what actual hand tool construction should be about. The book is available at lostartpress.com and at the time of this podcast it was selling for $46 for the hardbound book and $23 for the digital download. Again, buy the hardbound book. Trust me, you won't regret it and the extra $23 is going to be more than offset by the savings in needless tool purchases over the coming years if you subscribe to Chris's philosophies. I'm rating this as an 8 out of 10, effectively the benchmark against which I'll rate all future books in the category, great all-round books. If you choose to buy only one book to kick off your hand tool journey, I'd suggest that it's this book. Professional artisans are declining at a rapid rate. Chris gives out a few stats in his summary, showing that there are 40% less cabinet makers just in the decade 1999 to 2009. I think this argument is true. The torch has probably now forever been passed over to the dedicated amateur. We are the people who are going to keep the fine woodworking tradition alive. So get yourself a copy of the book. Take careful note of the appendixes which outline the key tools as selected by Hayward, Mox and Seaton and the like. Hold off on the tool purchases and start building the chest. That's it for now woodworms. And remember, go create something beautiful with wood and keep reading. If you have any comments or suggestions, perhaps a favorite book or one you're thinking of buying that you'd like me to consider, drop me an email at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. If you'd like to fund additions to the library, you can also find me on Patreon. Any contributions will go towards me buying more books and putting together more of these episodes. 